Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7. We're continuing a series, just walking through uh, the life of Jesus as we read about it in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, we'll be in Mark chapter 7. I do want to welcome you if you're a guest. We're glad that you're here. And if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. And so after the service, please catch me. I'd love to get acquainted with you and your family. Uh, But one thing that we annoy everybody around here with every week is the Connect card. Uh, And some of you are like, yeah, you annoy us with it. Uh, That Connect card, we love it though. When you fill it out and let us know you're here, it communicates to us this vision we have for a church being more than a seat that you sit in on a Sunday looking at a stage. Okay, and it lets us know that you are here. It lets us connect with you if you have questions. Uh, You can put your prayer requests on that card. And uh, just yesterday, we were praying. Uh, Our elders get together on Saturday mornings and we pray over all the prayer requests that you put on those cards. And it's getting to the point where we love this But we're going to invite some of our former elders to join us in praying for you to make sure that everybody is, in fact, being prayed for. So please continue to fill those out. At the end of the service, we have a time of offering and trays are passed and you can drop the connect card in that tray uh, as it comes by. So please uh, check that out for us and we appreciate it. Now, let me get us started uh, this morning this way. Um, Today, we're going to talk about something that's pretty difficult. It's really hard, actually. And it's hard because it's kind of like a silent killer. The Bible describes this sin that we're going to discuss today as being dangerous because it's the sin that God opposes above all else. I mean, God is completely opposed to this. He pushes back against it. It keeps more people away from God than anything else. Kind of lurks behind other sins that we battle in our lives. Creeps up on us and We don't see it coming. It's hard to figure out. It's hard to see. It's hard to put your finger on. This is a really big battle for a lot of people. And this morning, if you're thinking, well, this is probably not something I struggle with, you're probably struggling with this sin more than you ever have in your life. See, this sin, when you first begin to realize you're struggling with it, usually it's because you've been struggling with it so much you cannot ignore it any longer. Kind of creeps up. We don't see it coming. As a matter of fact, what's fascinating about this particular sin that all of us struggle with is whether you would say today that you're a Christian or you would say that you're not a Christian, whether you follow God or you don't, whether you're anti-religion or anyone else that you've ever encountered in your life, everyone, everyone struggles with this particular sin. As a matter of fact, some of the most devout, dedicated Religious Christian people that I know have struggled with this maybe more than anyone else. Many people come to Christ. They get their life started to look a lot better. They start to work on some things. Things are going really smooth for them. But they ignore this particular problem and they never really deal with this issue. And it becomes kind of like Christian B.O. Right? It's like Christian body. You ever sat near someone or been around somebody that's got body odor and they, they don't seem to notice it? Everyone else around them notices it, but not them. It becomes this stench, and you're like, something smells, not me. It, no, it's, it's you. It really is. It becomes a major issue, a major problem for so many different people. And can I be honest with you? I've struggled with this a lot in my life. I've hurt a lot of people in my life because of this. I've said inappropriate things. I've done inappropriate things. I've lost friendships. I've said things I can never take back because of this. 
I've lost opportunities to love and care for people because of this struggle. I've missed opportunities to build up and make much of God's kingdom as well. I think C.S. Lewis really describes this particular sin in his work, Mere Christianity, maybe better than anybody else has. And he says these words, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think that I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in other people. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more that we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in other people. The vice that I'm speaking of is pride or self-conceit. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So pride is something that we all struggle with. And the more we struggle with it ourselves, the more clearly we see it in other people. Or to reverse that, the more uh, obvious pride is in someone else, the more I'm probably battling it in my own heart. Pride causes us a lot of trouble. It's funny, we live in a culture that completely endorses our pursuits in such a way that we would build up our own pride and at the same time condemns it when the culture sees it in other people. We have a free pass to be prideful and yet condemn it the moment that we see it. Pride has caused many of us a lot of pain. It's cost many of us meaningful, deep friendships and relationships. We have said things we wish we would not have said. We have done things we wish we could take back. And you would think that something that has caused so much pain and been so difficult for each of us in our lives would be a little more obvious to us, that we would be a little more conscious of, re of removing it from our hearts and our minds and our lives, and yet we continue to struggle with this very human issue of pride. And then you come to the Bible and you begin to realize that this thing, pride, God, God takes it extremely seriously. He does not take it lightly. God very much focuses in, in his word, on the problem of pride. I mean, just take a survey of this. Now, before I give you the scriptures, uh, let me be clear. I, I did have plans to come back at Ryan after that little welcome he did uh, for you this morning. <laughs> My plan was to tell everybody to ask Ryan if he watched the Purdue game because he went to IU and uh, he was going to come hard at North Carolina. I was going to remind him that IU was watching. And, but I thought, I'm preaching on pride. I better not say that out loud. So <laughs> here's what God's word says about pride. The Lord protects the loyal, but fully repays the arrogant. The Lord destroys the house of the proud. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't let that word resist be lost on you. God pushes back against, does not want in his presence, the proud, but offers grace to the humble. Why is it that God is so opposed to pride and to the proud? 
I think Lewis had it right. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is the primary thing that prevents you from seeing everything else that God wants to do in your life. And today we're going we're gonna to get to be a fly on the wall, if you will, between a conversation between Jesus and this group of religious leaders. This group of religious leaders that were confident that they had the corner on the market when it came to knowing about God. They knew everything there was to know about God. They are the ones that were closest to him and had the authority to tell other people how to do the same. They were the religious elite in the culture, and they see Jesus over and over and over again and want to confront him. And we get to listen in on this conversation. And I'm confident that at some point, these Pharisees, at some point, their, their motives were pure in protecting God's law. But somewhere along the way, these religious practices, preferences, and traditions began to feed their human pride. And what might have been intended to draw them close to God over time, unchecked, pulled them further from him. So let's look at this encounter, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Here's what Mark tells us. He says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So the Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they continue to observe this popularity of Jesus just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Mark has told us numerous times in his gospel that a few different things made Jesus even more attractive to the crowds of people. One is these miracles he would perform. He had the authority to do all kinds of incredible things, and he would do these miracles, and people would see this is just not normal. This guy's got to be a special bird. We want to know more about this miracle worker, Jesus. And then Jesus would teach. And as he taught, Mark tells us over and over again, his teaching was unlike anybody else's teaching. Man, when he taught, you just wanted to listen to him. You were drawn in. You wanted to hear what he had to say. And so crowds and crowds of people are coming. And I think one maybe small reason why the Pharisees begin to pay attention is because the crowds are no longer coming to them. And it hurts their pride. They want to know more about it. They begin to listen. They're looking for any angle they can possibly get. Because they have these preconceived notions. They know Jesus. They know all about this Jesus. He's, I've got all my opinions about him. And the one thing I'm not going to let happen is let the facts change my opinions. I am set. This is Jesus. And I'm going to approach him the way I want to approach him. But before we get too far into the story, don't let it be missed on you. I mean, oftentimes we make this purely academic. But if you will, for a minute, place yourself in the story. God's word is living and active. It's living and active. And so you have to place yourself into this story. What character would you be? Let me give you this illustration, okay? This idea that we come in and we do the same thing the Pharisees did. We have a preconceived idea. I know how this operates. I know how this person works. I know why this person does what they're going to do. And I'm going to treat them as such. I'm going to interact with them as such. Our conversation will reflect the fact that I had an idea about you before I got here. And I'm going to treat you based on that idea. And the one thing I'm not going to let happen is let the facts change my opinion. We have this strong pride that says, I know, I know, I know. Because we think we understand things. Now, my wife and I have two very different views of uh, traffic, okay? 
when we're driving and I get cut off, I'm not happy. And my instinct is immediately to come to the conclusion that that's a horrible human being. <laughs> They're horrible. They're a rotten, horrible person. You're like, watch for Rob on the road, right? Like, I, I can't take them. Let's go get them. And my sweet wife, every time, she'll say things like, yeah, but what if his wife's in labor and they're on their way to the emergency room? I'm like, you can't say that. That's what happened three intersections ago. It can't be over and over again, Sarah. It doesn't work like that, okay? Maybe they're just a bad person and they decided to cut us off, okay? We have two different views of how this idea of tra I walk in with this preconceived idea. I know how these people work, these crazy drivers. I know how they work and nothing, not even the fact of potential labor is going to change my opinion uh, that they shouldn't drive that way. It's what the Pharisees are doing. They're coming to Jesus and they're like, we know how Jesus works. And their pride has blocked them from ever being able to hear the true message of what Jesus wants to say. Because in their pride, they've decided this is how he is. This is what it's supposed to be. And they're looking for any angle they can. And the disciples give them a really good one. They start eating without washing their hands. Now, in your Old Testament, these laws, if you would picture a circle just like this, these laws were given by God to tell people how to live a godly life. These religious leaders came around these laws, and you had a second outer circle, and they added these traditions. And the motives might have been pure. The motives were, let's make sure that the traditions are treated like law. So if you break a tradition, then we can reprimand you, but at least you didn't break the law. At least he didn't actually break the law. And so they added these traditions, maybe with good motive, but over time, the people that introduced new traditions and the people that reinforced the old traditions were the ones in authority. And they began to feed their authority and their pride with these traditions. And they began to treat these traditions with the same reverence and with the same authority that they treated the Bible. So now they have scripture and tradition on the same level. And they say, you can't break tradition or you sin. And so this tradition, Mark tells us a little bit about it. You had to wash your hands because the, you may have potentially, even without knowing it, touched a Gentile or touched something that was unclean or did something you weren't supposed to do. So before you eat, you have to come and wash your hands. Now, that's nowhere found in Scripture. It had nothing to do with hygiene. It was a tradition that these Pharisees are approaching Jesus, and they think they've found an angle on it. And this religious, ritual, and legalistic tradition that they've uh, created has blocked them from ever being able to see what God really intended with the law to begin with, which was to free them, to see that they need him. And so there's this, this cornering of Jesus that takes place. And, and they're trying to bind him. They're trying to create a, a, a standard with their tradition, and Jesus is not going to respond well. Because, if you notice, they come at him with this tradition, and not once do they cite scripture. See, they've got no biblical backing whatsoever for what they're going to do. They just quote a tradition and try to hold Jesus accountable to a tradition. And look at how he responds in verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? <laughs> I love it. He's coming in strong, like me driving. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then verse 8, If you're someone who likes to highlight or underline in your Bible, I would recommend you do so with verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus, one thing you notice about him when you read through the Gospels, he consistently will uh, be kind and gentle in some arenas. But in one particular area, area, he does not hold back and he calls it out every single time and it's with these hypocrites. What he's saying to them is this, your religion is just, you're just a bunch of religious actors. You're just showing off for everybody. You, you're, you're trying to pretend as though you're close to God, but your heart is miles from him. 
And you're basing all of this religious activity that you participate in on all this tradition that you do. This tradition that you're participating in, you're making new traditions and you're trying to make it binding and it's feeding your pride and feeding your ego and making you feel better about yourself, but it's just a show. Essentially, what Jesus asks him here by quoting Isaiah chapter 29 is this. He exposes the real heart of this issue and it's this. Is the source of your spiritual authority going to be the traditions that you've created or the word of God? Is the guide that you use to direct every single part of your life, is it going to be some tradition that you've learned, some tradition that you've created, or is it going to be God's word? You have to decide is essentially what Jesus is saying here. Because one of them leads your heart away from God and the other one will lead it to God. So he calls out these hypocrites. He calls out their pride. And says that this pride is preventing them from seeing the heart of what is going on. But man, I'm convinced we do the same. Many of us, we learn about different arenas of our life, and we'll talk about this more in a minute. But, but we, we want to learn about all these different things like parenting and finances and marriage and friendships and all these areas of our life that really impact who we become. They impact whether or not our life flourishes or whether our, our, or we suffer in life. And we want to pursue these things. And we get all of our best advice from Pinterest and, and Instagram and self-help books that are top sellers. And, and we find these little quotes and these phrases. And, and they're not biblically based, but they sound so good and they help us. And we begin to form everything we're doing around them. Look, they're not all bad. But I think we're up against the crisis, one that scares me. And I, I want to be like, very honest here. This is, what I'm about to say is not intended to be shock effect. But when I look at the church at large... In our country right now, I see a problem. And somebody has to say something. We have a biblical illiteracy problem. People are not reading scripture. We've reduced the Bible to a bunch of singular verses that we memorize here and there. And we're not engaging with the word of God. And so we're forming all of the direction of our life on traditions and customs and cultural expectations. And it's a scary place to be. Jesus says that's where your heart begins to get pulled away from God, not closer to him. Jesus continues in verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And now he's going to give them examples. So he's going to say, you, you've done a lot of like pushing against God's word and pursuing your own ideas and your own thoughts and feeding your pride. He says, let me give you an example of one of the ways that you guys have done this and you've really put this burden on other people. Verse 10, he says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must die. But what you've done with your tradition that you've added to all of this, you've said, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, or that is a gift given to God, then you no longer permit that person to do anything for his father or his mother. You just want them continually giving to, the, to, to the, your work. Thus, you vo make void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And there's many more examples, he says, of the way that you guys do this. So what, what they're doing, what he's calling them out on, is they found this spiritual loophole. They have said, God's word says this, and he's quoting from Exodus and Deuteronomy. He's quoting the fifth commandment. Jesus brings the Bible into this immediately. He says, hey, instead of talking about your traditions, let's get to scripture. Here's one example. The Bible is very clear that you honor your mother and your father. And if you don't, the, in that day, the custom was that you were put to death. And no, we're not bringing that back. But, okay, but that, that's, that was the custom then. And he said, if that's the custom, but you've added this loophole, this tradition that gets you out of having to really obey this. And what you're doing, instead of just obeying what the Bible has told you to do because it's uncomfortable for you, 
As you've said that as long as you, whatever you do is a gift toward God, then you don't need to take care of the needs anymore. You can just refocus, no longer needing to honor them. You can kind of push that aside. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you make justifications for your behavior to get around listening to what Scripture says, submitting to what the Word of God says, you actually prevent the Word of God from working in your life. He says you've actually made the power of God's Word in your life void because you refuse to submit to it. Essentially, what I hear him saying here a little bit is don't pick and choose what parts of God's word we submit to. And maybe you're guilty of this. I've done this in my life. I've, I've really done this. Where I, man, it is easy to follow God's word in certain areas. I'm all about it. I can do this and this and this and this. And then I come to a certain area that might be difficult or hard. Or, man, it just rubs me the wrong way. And I don't like it. And I'm going to find, that can't really be what it says. I can't, that's not really what it means. And so I'm going to find a way to kind of twist it and, and make it say what I want so I can continue to be perfectly comfortable. What Jesus says is when we do that, man, you, you are preventing the work of God in your life through the power of his word. You're, you're stopping it because you're trying to, in your own pride, make it say what it doesn't say. You're following the customs of the culture, the tradition of man, and not the word of God. So we've got a real problem on our hands got this pride issue that we all struggle with. This pride issue where we think we can figure it out. I got it all figured out on my own and I can do this and I can pick and choose what parts of the word of God I want to follow and I'll just push other parts aside. And So what's the solution? And I think there's this beautiful way that Mark 7 and 8 are laid out that kind of give us an idea. See, in Mark chapter 7, he encounters the Pharisees and then he gives this really neat teaching about, hey, what defiles a person is what takes place on the inside, not the outside. He says, your heart, if you don't watch your heart, it is going to corrupt your entire soul. And when pride sinks into your heart, this silent killer begins to grow and harden your heart. Then all of a sudden, your heart is hardened. He says, you got to watch what's going on on the inside, not just the way things look on the outside. Well, then Jesus begins to go and he heals a few different people. The Pharisees come back in the scene in chapter 8, Mark chapter 8. And in Mark chapter 8, they're like, well, we need a sign. And he's like, ugh. He like literally exhales. I think the text actually tells us he kind of sighs. Like, ugh, of course you need a sign. I'm done. And he kind of walks away. Gives him the cold shoulder a little bit. He's like just tired of it. And so you got this problem. The pride of the Pharisees is very evident in that moment. They're so prideful. What happens? Well, then Jesus heals a blind man. It's fascinating. He physically restores the sight from a man who could not see. And then after that in chapter 8, he concludes chapter 8 by giving us in very... Uh, plain language, the solution to the pride problem. It's as if he's saying, you guys have been blind to this problem in your life. You've been blind to this. And the only one who can help you see is Jesus. He displays it physically. And then at the end of chapter 8, spiritually, we're told, how am I supposed to see past this blind spot of pride in my heart? In chapter 8, verse 34, he says this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? He says, what goes on on the inside matters deeply. This is chapter 7 and 8 in a nutshell. Your soul matters. The health of your soul is significant. And if you pursue all these other things and feed your pride and your ego, you will lose your soul. And you, can't, you just can't let that happen. 
And so he says, in order to prevent that from happening, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. But my thought is, well, how do we actually do that? You leave this place, you go to Cracker Barrel, El Rodeo, wherever else you're going for lunch. You get home, you go out in the garage and physically build a cross and start hiking it around on your shoulder? No. So what does it mean in this day and age, us, this group of Christians, this church family, to, to walk out of here and begin to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him? I'm going to give you three things. They're not the only three things, and I understand that. But there are three things that have helped me understand this, and I want to offer them to you, and I hope they'll help you, okay? The first thing we do in order to deny ourselves is we humble ourselves. So humble yourself. Submit to the lordship of Jesus in every single part of your life. Don't be selective. See, this idea of submission means that we let go. There are certain parts of our life that are harder for us to let go of. We, we will follow the Lord, but I'm going to hold on tight to this part. And then all of a sudden, through the conviction we receive reading God's word, we're told to let go, and it's just hard. The Bible rarely says, be humble. It almost always describes humility by saying, humble yourself. Because if it told us to go be humble, it would be some sort of an achievement we would try to get. Let's just go be humble. I'm just going to be humble. I'm going to act humble. Humbling yourself is a continual act of self-denial. It's a continual act of saying, I need to humble myself before God. I need to let go of certain areas of my life that I've been holding on to. Let me illustrate for you this way. Lewis Smeads uh, tells a story of a farmer. And his son had a real close relationship. He's a middle school age kid, true story. And this guy's gonna, he's got one of those houses with a really long gravel driveway, okay? Hard to imagine in Boone County. But uh, he, he's got a long gravel driveway, okay? And he's gonna go run some errands. He's gonna get in his pickup truck. Well, his son liked to play pranks and have fun with him. And so the, the, the goal was, I'm gonna jump in the bed of the truck. His dad's getting ready to go and scare him. So dad goes out, son's timing it right. Dad starts to drive, son misses. <laughs> misses the bed of the truck, but holds onto the bumper grabs the bumper and holds on, and dad doesn't notice. And so dad starts driving down this gravel, but luckily dad had his window down. So he starts hearing his son, ah, stop, like a middle school high-pitched, you know what it sounds like, right? And he's just screaming, ah, help me, and he stops. He doesn't get too far down the driveway, and he stops. He gets out, and he wants to go investigate what is this yelling. He gets to the back of the truck, and it's his son scraped up, cut up, no real bad injuries, everything's okay, gets them all settled, and he asks the question that you're probably asking in your head. Son, you, you missed. Why did you grab onto the bumper? Why didn't you let go? How long were you going to hold onto that bumper and let me drag you down the road? And the son looked up and said, huh, I guess I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> but I, I read that and I think to myself, I mean, we do the same thing. Many of us say that we've been following Jesus for years and years and years, and we've been holding on tight to certain things that are hurting us. And it's as if the Father is saying to you, how long have we been doing this? When are you going to let go? When are you going to get, you notice how Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 8, he says, he who loses his life for my sake. Sacrifice is important, but this is a specific sacrifice. Who loses his life for my sake will gain it. You know what that means? It means he's the only one that can tell us how to live this life. But we have to submit and let go. Number two, listen to the right voices. Make sure that the Bible is the primary authority in your life. And I cannot stress this enough. I cannot stress this one enough. Remember the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees approach with this arrogance, this pride, and they come really hard at Jesus, and they never use Scripture. 
They never support anything they're saying with the Bible. Jesus comes very direct, very confident, but with a humility about himself uh, back at the Pharisees, and he quotes scripture the whole time. Remember when Jesus, just a few chapters back, was in the, in the desert being tempted in the wilderness? And the enemy comes to him and he begins to quote scripture to him each and every time. Jesus did not learn that scripture after he got to the wilderness. Heard one preacher say this way, you don't open your door, see a giant tornado, turn around to your family and say, we should probably start getting ready. You can't do that. See, what, what you've been hiding in your heart is what will come out in those moments. And the Pharisees were not hiding the word of God, they were hiding the traditions of man. Pursuing their preferences, their opinions. So let me, how this plays out in our world today, let me ask you a few tough questions. What about your parenting? Can you tell me biblically why you parent the way you do? Can you give me any biblical understanding of why you approach parenting the way you do? What about your money? Do you pray and consult scripture before you make big financial decisions? Do you go to God and pray and ask him where he's leading you? with your finances on a regular basis? What about your marriage? See, marriage in our culture has become like dating. If you get tired of it, you just get divorced. You move on. But, but have you stopped to say, even though this is difficult, the Bible's clear about this idea of covenant, and I want to take it seriously? Have we looked at what Scripture tells us to inform us about these vital ways of our life either flourishing or suffering? What about Friendships. We've got a, a lot of young people in the room, but this is for all of us. You show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Every time. And the Bible's clear about it. The book of Proverbs says the people you keep close to you, they will either rub off on you in a way of wisdom or they're going to cause suffering. It doesn't say that you'll just be dumb. That's a given. It says you'll actually <laughs> suffer. Your life will suffer because of the people you choose to keep close to you. Do you, do you understand what the Bible says about your friendships? Could you defend, like, hey, we, we choose to discipline our kids this way or raise our kids this way or point our kids in this direction or we, we have the rhythm of our home built this way because of what the Bible teaches us or in our marriage, this is why we communicate the way we do and this is why we make decisions we do or this is why I'm choosing to be generous with my money. Are the, is the, the main way that you're gaining wisdom and direction for your life because you're submitting yourself to the authority of the scriptures or just to the customs of the culture? Just to whatever the culture says is okay, are you twisting scripture to say, well, it's not, it doesn't really say that, we don't really have to do that, or are you actually saying this is what the Bible says, and as much as I may like it or not like it, I'm going to submit. R.C. Sproul said it this way, he said, you, you cannot identify what is counterfeit if we do not know what the genuine is. You will not know the trouble that's coming for you until it arrives if you're not paying attention to what God's been telling you. We have to, we have to take seriously our time in God's word. And nobody can do that for you. The last one's a question I'm going to ask. And this question, um, it's one that I've wrestled with. And I hope that you will too. I want to read you a scripture. Maybe just spend a few minutes. I can't, I can't do everything in a sermon. You can't just get up here. And, but this question, man... Where is it that you find your deepest satisfaction? Now, you could just gloss over that question, but I think the answer to this question will reveal to us where we've placed our pride. Because where I'm 
most satisfied is what is going to get most of my attention. Do you find your deepest satisfaction in your achievements, your work ethic, what you can or can't pull off in your own strength? Is it in your bank account or is it based on your gut or is it social media and self-help books? Where is it that you find yourself enjoying your deepest sense of satisfaction? Well, the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to a church in a city called Philippi. It's actually a letter we're going to study as a church in the fall. And in this letter, he's addressing a group of people that battled pride. They were all Roman citizens, and they boosted themselves up. And he has to remind them to humble themselves. But he says, you don't humble yourself just to do it, just to make yourself better. You humble yourself because you're following the leader who did it for you first. And he writes these words, and I want you to take these words in along with that question as we prepare ourselves for communion. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, meaning this is how you should approach your life. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even cross death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory, not of us, not of my pride, but to the glory of God the Father.